I'm Andy Kesson, and this is A Bit Lit. Founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown, A Bit Lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about Ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We've followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at abitlit. Samira, hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good. Really good of you to join us. Um, we're starting our films by asking contributors to introduce themselves and to tell us a bit about what they do. So would you mind doing that, please? Uh, so I'm Samira Ahmed. I'm a, a journalist. I guess these days people think of me primarily as a, a cultural and arts journalist because I present Front Row, which is Radio 4's flagship daily arts show, where we do everything from reviews to interviewing writers, directors, filmmakers, um, and having discussions about things. I might just as well be interviewing the culture secretary about what's happening with um, performing um, artists' possibilities for visa-free work travel as uh, interviewing Margaret Atwood about her latest novel or her latest book of poems. Um, I also make documentaries, a lot of which are very cultural. So I made Art of Persia, which was a kind of cultural history of um, the Iranian plateau um, and all the empires and all the kind of archaeological heritage and how it's shaped modern Iranian identity, including through poetry um, and um, literature and painting. And... Um, I'm also a news journalist, which is how I started out. I was a news trainee at the BBC um, straight from university after having done an English literature degree. Hmm. And I love news and that's where I always thought I'd be. I worked as a foreign correspondent for a while in Los Angeles covering, well, I'd cover things like the Oscars, but I'd also cover the O.J. Simpson um, civil case where he was um, um, accused of murdering his ex-partner and her friend um, and so there was often a juxtaposition of talking about kind of culture and popular culture entertainment and hard news and I thought it was quite important to know where those lines are and sometimes the stories at heart it's about domestic violence it doesn't matter that the person accused is a celebrity sports person um, it matters that the, the issue is domestic violence um, and so that's how I've always approached my work is through a hard news journalistic prism. I've done a lot of court reporting as well. Um, the only encounter I ever had with Madonna was sitting in a courtroom in Los Angeles where she was forced to give evidence in the trial of her stalker. So there was yeah. all these issues about how women are forced to give their abusers the attention that they demand. But also her case flagged up the issue of stalking, which affects many ordinary women and men, not just celebrities. Um, so again, I've, I'm really interested about how hard news politics and cultural um, sort of inter, interweave and overlap. And I also present a show called Newswatch where viewers complain about BBC news coverage and, and, and offer compliments. And we interview the, the newsmakers. So again, it's all critical thinking. It's all kind of like art appreciation. Was this a good news programme? If not, why not? Why did they use that language? Was it appropriate? Um, so the skills are all the same. Hmm. Um, and I also really love reading, writing, going to the cinema, um, theatre, and it's a huge part of my life and my work. And I'm also writing my first book, which is nonfiction, um, but it's about uh, popular culture um, and it's, it's kind of historical and political. 
Thank you. Are we allowed to hear more about the book? You were No, sadly not. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> I've, I'm, I'm just getting on with it. But I spent a lot of October, November in the Bodleian Library in Oxford researching some diaries and papers which haven't been read before. So there's some really interesting stuff coming out, but I've got to get it all down and then you'll all know about it. Fair enough. We all look forward to that. Thank you. That's really exciting. Um, you talked about all of those things being very connected for you, but they also feel um, terrifyingly disparate uh, for someone like me who just kind of does one one thing. So I'm kind of fascinated to think about that connection between the hard news prism that you were talking about and then of the way much of this hard news um, gets consumed as entertainment. We're sort of in this weird moment, maybe culturally, where um, we're consuming um, even even what we might call hard news as a kind of form of entertainment. Could you tell us a bit yes. more about those challenges of the crossover? Yes. So there's two issues there, and I'll park one of them, which is um, how you can report cultural news, like a celebrity interview, and actually create good news or important news out of it. Mm. Um, but I think the issue you're, you're flagging up most, and I'm happy to talk about first, is how we've kind of turned... Um, news into entertainment and the term infotainment is the one that I often use which was coined a few years ago um, and an example would be and I really noticed this in the early 2000s when I was a reporter at Channel 4 News for um, 11 years and I used to have a lot of freedom to pursue my own stories and my own angles and, and more time and there were all these Islamist protests and they were obviously attention seeking and trying to provoke a distasteful reaction you know they would protest when bodies were being brought back from Iraq and Afghanistan um, and cause distress and they held up placards outside the Danish embassy you know mm -hmm. calling about beheading the unbelievers um, and some of them were eventually jailed for for um, you know, terrorist defences and incitement to murder. And there was one guy in particular, Anjum Chowdhury, who I'd encountered back when I was a reporter on Newsnight in the early 90s, who was stirring up trouble on um, university campuses, a lot of anti-Semitic, but also anti-female, misogynistic, and just you know, stirring up hostility, um, attacking non strict enough Muslims. And you know, they were getting away with a, a lot of harassment. And he would be invited on, I mean, it got to say he'd be invited onto news programmes. So I remember there was a, and it was on Newswatch, you know, Newsnight invited him on to discuss one of these controversial issues. And, you know, he was one of those people who, not even just, there were ones who denied, you know, they questioned 9-11, for example, and you'd end up with a news interview where the presenter would be interviewing someone about their conspiracy theory. And of course it fed more hostility. Ordinary Muslims felt this did nothing to help them remind people that this is an extremist view. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until he was jailed um, um, on terrorist-related charges that actually news organisations suddenly thought, why were we just inviting him on as if he was just another voice to hear? And that's the infotainment issue. Now, what's really interesting is I thought that would be the end of it. But of course, it's come back in a different way, um, came back with climate change in a huge way where there was mm. false equivalence, um, although that isn't entertainment so much. Um, but I would argue in its own way, I want you to think carefully about examples. I think the way news coverage around the royal family is used, and particularly when it's combined with rolling news, endless, like we're outside the hospital where some member of the royal family is about to give birth. Sometimes there's a, there's a jokey element. I know a couple of BBC presenters have become quite famous for like, oh, I'm really excited by this. Mm -hmm. But that's also about turning it into entertainment. Um, and I think the phenomenon of rolling news in particular mm. has, and then social media now on top of that, has really um, added to this sense that everything is only as exciting as, you know, the next stunt or the next explosive confrontation. Um, and that's, I think, not healthy.
for a society yeah. which we should know how to prioritize what is important and what isn't and the pandemic has has further fueled that where the odd celebrity stunt or a feel-good story or the clap for carers is a great example mm. where it took on a momentum of its own and you ended up with crowds defying social distancing crowding onto the bridge along with all those police officers and people that want you know this has become a spectacle and it's lost connection to the actual news event it was supposed mm. to be about which is the underfunding of the nhs and the heroic actions of staff who were at higher risk of death and infection all the rest mm. of it yeah thank you you've given us lots of ways of thinking about that issue and i, I also wonder if Trump and Brexit are there too as um, examples of um, winning political power by being more entertaining than your rivals and by driving some of those cycles. Yeah, well, I think it's also important to remember that although there's a lot of danger that Britain is heading that way, mm. um, American news media is is already at such an extreme and it's hugely responsible um, for um, the kind of polarisation of views in America. So their live news channels really just react to the next outrageous thing he would tweet. And there is that sense that you don't finish dealing with one before the next one comes along. And every, I mean, I remember the early days after he got elected, CNN had a debate and they put up a strap line and the strap line said, all alt-right uh, founder asks, are Jews people? And quite rightly, a lot of people complained and said, why are you normalizing even the wording of that question? Why is this even up for debate? Um, so I, I think that's been a big problem. And it's, it's happened here, it's happened with Brexit, it's happened with a lot of issues. Mm. And I think it works to the advantage of some politicians as well, mm. to keep a, a constantly, um, they're constantly poking a fire um, of outrage, because it's a great distraction from underlying issues. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. Um, a lot of my work is on the 16th century um, literary and theatrical culture. And um, there's a, a play in the 16th century in which a uh, a wannabe courtier is trained how to be a cool courtier, how to be a, a cool politician by being trained to ask the question, what news as the way of saying, how are you? Because it's the way of getting all the gossip out of somebody. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Which play is this? Uh, it's called Sappho and Fao or Fao, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, by someone called John Lilly. But yeah, I, I taught thee that lesson to ask what news um, says one courtier to another and, and starts training him up to remember to ask that question in order to... Uh, to, to both entertain and to find out what, what is new. Yeah, and it feeds the sense of, you know, of there has to be action. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it feels like, I mean, you mentioned rolling news as something that's happened in the last 30 years, I suppose, as a recent thing, but it's sort of built into the word news, isn't it? That it's all about this craving of the latest thing, the most recent thing, this kind of topicality of news. Yeah, and it's funny, I remember reading a book that was a history of the 18th century a few years ago, I was interviewing the author for Night Waves, as it was then called, the mm. Radio 3 Arts and Discussions programme, it's now called Free Thinking. And, you know, the 18th century London was this explosion of news media, all the mm. different competing journals and papers, and they were being hawked around, and people were going to coffee houses to share them, and women were getting more literate, and, you know, mm. it seemed like it was in its own way as... as dynamic and as uh, news obsessed as today um, so I'm not trying to pretend that it's a uniquely modern phenomenon mm. however I do think it unfolding in non-stop real time where stuff is constantly in your face and of course it's visual we all know visual memory works in a more powerful way than the act of reading itself although it's technically visual there's a processing that goes on and and I think that's that's my concern um it's the sort of sensory overload and also and it's easy for me to say because I'm older I'm a gen, gen xer 
my generation grew up with new technologies coming in gradually. So we were all started out as readers um, and uh, smartphones in particular were not normal until we were well into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very different when you see, I see toddlers on planes being given iPads to watch and scroll through. And I can't help wondering what that does to concentration and their ability to process news and facts. And I think, you know, coming back to the critical thinking skills, in theory you learn at school, but many humanities degrees reinforce, which is looking at a document or a piece of evidence and working out how reliable is this? What are its sources? Does it have a bias? Now we did that with physical documents, you know, when you studied history or, or you read in a text, what, what anti-Semitism was there in Shakespeare's time that makes the Merchant of Venice entertaining and fun when in some ways it horrifies us today. Um, it's much harder, weirdly, to do that, even though it's much easier to do that on the internet because you can quickly source things. Mm. But we know that um, um, lies and um, things get escalated far more quickly too so it's a strange paradox of how the information network has actually created a greater sense of disinformation now yeah and there's a kind of liveness to social media isn't there as well and social media makes agents of us all as journalists like um i could go out and film something and it could quite quickly be picked up by the media in a way that would not have been possible in the 18th century so it's Which the yeah, which is in some ways um, empowering. So I'm, I was an early adopter, relatively early adopter of Twitter, um, 2010. Maybe that wasn't that early. But what I really valued from very early on was that it was two-way. So it wasn't about talking down to people. It was actually getting hints. So sometimes we saw that unfold with the raid on the Osama bin Laden compound where a local resident was woken up by the helicopters. That was the first news that something was going on. So there is a democratising of of um, events. Um, obviously, people can then lie and distort. But on the whole, I think there's been something very powerfully positive about individuals being able to come out, individuals becoming heroes because of what they've done, capturing incidents on camera and exposing whether it's racists or violent attacks. You know, I think those are all the upsides. And then also getting in touch with people, approaching people for interviews, people suggesting topics to me. I've discovered so much through the openness of social media. That's fascinating. Thank you, Samira. Um, is it right to turn, we're talking about kind of the general landscape of the world you work in, if it's right to turn to your work more specifically. Um, I mean, the thing I saw from you most recently is the, is art, the art of Persia, which is just fantastic. Um, and is a lovely example of um, bringing new audiences to uh, a cultural history, which is just deeply marginalised in kind of traditional Western ways of thinking about history and art. Would you mind telling us both about the opportunities and the challenges of making a show like that? Yeah, and no, well, thank you for asking about it. What's been lovely about that show is I've had such an amazing reaction from around the world. It's been shown in, I think, Portugal, um, Belgium, um, and a couple of other countries. And people have just grasped that understanding a culture is different to the news headlines and a regime in power. And I'm not going to... Um, you know, it wasn't a programme about the Iranian regime. And I think it's helpful to know because sometimes one, the last 40 years is, is a lifetime for many of us. I was 10 when the Iranian revolution happened. So it's not to try and diminish just what tough time it's been. But it's also when you put things into historical context to appreciate that a cultural identity, especially one that feels under siege or under repression, can find great strength from knowing its historical depth. And, the, and what we discovered in making Art of Persia was that the Iranian plateau has been repeatedly invaded from east and from west, and yet somehow it's always held on to its language and its, its sense of self. Um, 
and understanding that I can I think can only be enriching it doesn't it doesn't provide easy answers to where are we now? What are the prospects of the future? But it helps us understand Iranian people and that they are not the same as their government. Um, I also find myself thinking a lot about, I mean, I grew up studying German. I did German A-level and the wall came down when I was 21. So it was a huge event in my um, you know, early adulthood. And I remember that, you know, it seemed East Germany would last forever when I was a child. The Cold War was this constant presence. And it was 40 years, pretty much the same, when that ended. And it just reminded me how stuff can dramatically rupture. Um, when I interviewed Michael Palin for my um, podcast, How I Found My Voice, you know, he's writing history books these days. And I asked him if that gave him a different perspective. And he said even things like Brexit, which has divided the country so much and has been so angry and um, an issue he said you know you can see in in it's not to diminish the suffering and the anxiety ab about issues like brexit or even the pandemic i think which was yet to come but it kind of puts things into perspective you know that in the grand timeline of human existence this too shall pass and i i as i say it's not to diminish it but just to appreciate that time moves on and things become the past and we learn to adapt and to cope um, so I think that was all part of what came out of going to Persia. There was also, I mean, the significance of the fact that letting us in seemed to be an interesting, potentially um, culturally diplomatic thing. You know, um, scholars and there are many archaeologists, you know, who really would love to go and spend more time there. Um, they're, they're very hopeful that in the long term, Iran opening up to a two-way exchange with with scholars is is again a positive thing is how we start to understand each other the cultural heritage waiting to be you know excavated there is just incredible um and then loans of objects and things so um again that's a, that's a longer term process but that's all important too um so i was glad to get in we were given permission to go wherever we liked we had a drone camera flying around at a time when the iranian military was shooting down a u.s drone over the Strait of Hormuz and its sort of escalated tensions. Trump was threatening to bomb all these UNESCO heritage sites where we were filming. You know, there are, I think, 22, probably more UNESCO heritage sites in Iran alone. And just reminding people that Iran isn't just the country that you see the news headlines, but it's one of the most culturally precious sites of human civilization. It was important. Yeah, absolutely. Um did did the, the that context that what felt at the time like a potential build up to war did that affect the the filming process at all? No, I mean what was interesting is I mean the BBC and a lot of Western media are, are blocked in a lot of Iran. So, um, but by by sheer coincidence, just after we'd filmed with the drone, we got to Tehran and we were staying at this hotel, which is where all the international diplomats stay. So it's the one hotel where it's got CNN and it's got BBC and it's got all the news services are not blocked there. So we suddenly caught up on all this stuff that was escalating. And, and it was interesting. The other thing we saw was there's some very witty billboards that are put up by the regime and you just see them in the middle of the street um, as you're driving through towns. And, and there was one which was after the drone incident. It was like a video game hmm. and it had like a missile shooting down a US plane and it said, USA nil, Iran won. You know, I just, and there was one, which is just a picture of Donald Trump with a big piece of black tape across his face, and it just said, shut up. <laughs> so, you know, you caught interesting glimpses into um, how, how things looked in Iran. And, you know, they are an incredibly educated people. A lot of them have international connections. So news does get in, 
But mm. the reality of living under a regime like that is people, and, and only people have a living memory of the Cold War and know people who were dissidents in, in Poland and East Germany and, you know, Soviet Russia can really mm. understand how an entire population can live for decades or more with this sort of constant double level of what you feel safe to say out loud and what you feel safe to think. And, mm. you know, um, we take it for granted that we have pretty much freedom of expression mm. in countries like the UK, but it's, it's a precious thing and it doesn't exist in many other places. And we're seeing it being turned back in places like Hong Kong right now in real time. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and it felt like the program was quite deliberately making us think about culture then and now um, in that there were quite a lot of shots the filming emphasised your journey to and from the spaces that the programme was covering. So it was thinking quite carefully about um, what Iran feels like from the street, I suppose, now, as, as well as the historical um, subject matter of the programme. I don't know if I, if I got that right. Yeah, but... Well, part of it is because, I mean, Iran has so many things that are unique and they've held on to. So the bizarre culture of, mm -hmm. of shopping, you know, it is different. They don't have malls. So there's one or two in North Tehran where the kind of, you know, um, elite go. Um, but otherwise, it's it, the whole way it transacts its daily life is rooted in really ancient traditions. When you mm -hmm. walk through the bazaar where Marco Polo walked through in, in mm -hmm. Yazd, for example, and it's still a living bazaar, um, you know, you realise that that connection is, is alive at a far more fundamental level than it is somewhere like Britain, where we say we're a nation of shopkeepers, but you know, not, not an, when Napoleon said that, who knows, but you know, it's not the same. It's just, it's just, so I think we wanted to, to see how much that ran at a deep level in Iranian identity could be traced back. So that was why the literature of the Shahnameh, which is the Persian book of Kings, which I always describe as a combination of the Arthuriad, um, Shakespeare's history plays. Um, and what's the third thing I'd say? I mean, and, and sort of a Greek myth, really, because mm. it's um, it's mythology, but it's also, I mean, the poet who wrote it was looking at all these ancient relics of these lost um, ancient empires that he didn't understand, he didn't speak or read, mm. read cuneiform. Um, so he made up stories about real historical figures, and then at some point it turns into real history. Um, that Iranians often have a copy of that at home, they learn the stories at school. Um, it's far more alive to them than... I would argue Shakespeare is. I think people mm. may have heard of Shakespeare, but I don't think that many of us really would say they know their plays and their characters mm. inside out. And if you imagine somewhere like Tintagel, where we think of it as the birthplace of King Arthur, that's the closest you've got to some of these locations like Persepolis, which is known as the kind of the throne of Jamshid, who was a mythological king, mm. um, because that was how it was described in this poem. So it has two names. So Iranians know that it's not like, like we know King Arthur probably didn't exist. Um, but Tintagel is both Arthur's birthplace, but it's also a monastery that had a real history. That's We're how Iranians themselves. Thank you. We're speaking in, in the week that a, th a film company has threatened to release a, an Arthur film, um, which is faithful to the original, which um, has blown my mind as, as a concept. Um, and you're making me wonder what our shared stories are, because we don't really have, as you say, um, culturally Shakespeare's um, shared knowledge or, or even perhaps um, religious shared stories anymore i'm beginning to worry that it's the kind of origin of superheroes that are maybe the closest that we have in our current culture to yeah, stories that we all share <laughs> i mean there are so many i mean i didn't know many um i knew a few welsh um legends growing up and i read a lot of um you know books of of you know british myths and legends and fairy mm. stories um so on the one hand we needed to broaden that anyway i mean my husband's heritage is from Northern Ireland and there were all these amazing Irish legends, mm. you know, about uh, their kings and so on. So 
learning that is an additional thing we should all do. But King Arthur could be. I mean, there is this perpetual fascination with King Arthur, which I'm, I, I've read so many versions of it. I was rereading The Mists of Avalon, which is a feminist retelling mm. where Arthur is a rather weak man doing... He's basically representing the Taliban who are trying to destroy the true faith of ancient Britain and Morgan Le Fay is trying to defend it. And I just wrote a column for a magazine about it because that book changed the way I saw so much in life. Mm. And so, you know, stories like that can help us. Well, it's really useful now, isn't it? Where, you know, how do we define ourselves as Brits? What is our national story? You can even look at, you know, you think no one disagrees that King Arthur's a great English story. Whether it's British or not, it's, it's also disputed now with greater kind of regional nationality. Yeah. Um, but there are different ways of reading all of them, which I think you know reveals that it's, it's really hard to simplify it. I don't think we have that. And when you try to, like the American myth, and I've made a programme about the author of The Little House and the Prairie books, one of my documentaries is about Laura Ingalls Wilder. You know, this whole myth of uh, manifest destiny, that you know white Christians were destined to just conquer the land from west, from mm. east to west, all the genocide of the Native Americans, they've never really processed that. You know, mm. slavery, you know, in the fundamentals of the birth of that, you know, republic. Um, they've never really dealt with, there's still this great myth that America is founded on freedom, but it's not. Absolutely. And um, yeah, Arthur intersects with all that, doesn't he? In that, as you say, that weird place, but he's sort of English, sort of British. Um, sort of figure who fights off incoming migrants um, and is also a kind of incoming migrant of his own. He sits in lots of odd places and his story often comes from Europe and from Ireland rather than from kind of English sources as well. So circulating in lots of really... Yeah, yeah no, and the other thing is way. I studied Anglo-Saxon at university. One of the joys of my English literature degree was it was still compulsory in the first year and it was mm. tough old English. But, oh my God, how haunting is the world of the Anglo-Saxons, mm. the real Anglo-Saxons, who of course were invaders, who came from flipping Germany and places like that. Um, and so it's so interesting the way the Anglo-Saxon has become shorthand for, for some white nationalists, mm. when for me, the, the phrase Anglo-Saxon always makes you think of this lost, quite mournful culture mm. um, with a real sense of death. And I don't know if you um, saw the British Library's exhibition of Anglo-Saxon mm. kingdom about three or four years ago I just um it's one of the most moving experiences I've had in my life mm. um because there's so much about it's almost like an alien civilization which somehow disappeared we, um even though we think it's the root of us so um I'm quite fascinated by what we can learn from our older the older versions of ourselves mm. yeah absolutely me too and whether they think of themselves as Angles or Saxons or something else as well really came out from that exhibition, I think, these different stories that those various different kinds of people were, were telling about themselves. Um, Samir, if it's all right to turn again to the kind of wider picture of your, of your work um, and where I both kind of fall over with um, astonishment at the different things you, the different um, balls you keep juggling, but also with total horror at the thought of it because I'm a lazy person. Um, I mean, it's, it strikes me that one of the many things that's really striking about your career is you're doing both very long-term projects, like a, a big TV show, you're writing a book, and yet you also are very committed to repeat um, broadcasting, to being there every week discussing um, and responding to recent issues and the way that they've been presented and responding to, to viewer feedback. Do you mind telling us a little bit about what it is like to move between those two, those, those, those two different kinds of ways of working? 
I think it's not uncommon with journalists who started out in hard news. As you get older um, and you have more experience, one, you've kind of covered all those stories before. So I still have friends who I started out at the BBC with who are still daily news reporters, like Duncan Kennedy, who's outside court doing court reports. Um, There is still a satisfaction in doing a specific job well. And I, I, I would often tell people there was nothing like the pleasure's a strange word but being in court where it's just you paying attention to what everyone's saying writing down sifting them and working out what are the key points here and the workings of i mean i've only seen the english justice system i haven't been in scottish or welsh or northern irish courts but there's something about the workings of our justice system which are actually incredible and i really urge people to just go and sit and watch them because it's it's masterclass in the power of carefully made arguments and evidence and the good work that so many decent police officers and um you know mm. officials do for us so um that was that was really powerful and it's often informed my work so when i've interviewed crime writers for example i've mm. you know i've just sometimes thought, why have you written a made-up book about serial killer i've sat in a room with a serial rapist and i don't understand why people want to create fictional ones when i like to to understand what makes real ones and how we stop it. Um, and growing into long form happened gradually. So at Channel 4 News, I would turn around daily news pieces, but I also had the chance to work on my own films. And that's where I really started to make more cultural focused things. So I interviewed, you know, we would get interviews with directors. So we got Tim Burton when he made um, Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. But because we had a decent length time slot, I could talk to him about his backstory and mm. what had inspired some of his earlier films. So that became sort of middle form um, um, journalism and and then I think uh, I went freelance about 10 years ago and I think it's just partly the confidence of having done things for years I'd already made a documentary series at Channel 4 and been to Iran for that um, there's different you have different levels of focus I think um, I find it harder to do super long form stuff with the documentary it's a team so a lot of the work of that was others having to sort out the logistics we had an amazing team of local fixers who organized our locations and our accommodation um, so I could focus I remember reading the Shahnameh you know pretty much cover to cover during that trip which is mm. 66,000 lines of poetry in English I should say um, but I could dive into that and kind of absorb the sense of what the poem represented and then match it to individual locations where I would respond with my journalistic instincts to what I saw. And some of that was spotting, like I would spot a turtle in the water and we'd make sure we filmed it. But some of it was responding just to something someone said to me or, or something I'd just seen. Um, and a lot of that came across in the pieces of camera I did. So I think it's, it's they all fit together a bit like a mosaic. And mm. I mean, with writing a book, I mean, I'm relatively early in it, but I have done all my research. There was something about going back to my student days. And I would say the skills, you know, for those of you as students of, that you learn at um, A level and degree level of diving into the subject that fascinates you. And you know, phone off, <laughs> In the library, because I used to have to drive to Oxford to do it. I used to be in the library from nine till seven and just maximise my time. And I was going through original documents and just unfolding history. So I, I would come out each day. And, I, you know, that year I might have might have been 1977 that day. Mm. Then I'd re-emerge into what was happening on the news on my way home. And I quite like that. I guess I've become more of a historian in a way. And I think journalists make natural historians mm. from the day-to-day turnaround to... When you get older, I can remember what the 80s were like and I can compare it to the mass unemployment and the effect on young people happening today. Although Mm. it's different, there are similarities. So straight away, you become a historian anyway as an older journalist. And that then becomes a skill you can translate into. The research is the same. It's just longer form. Yeah. 
Thank you. We're nearing the end of the film, Samira. I'm absolutely delighted from a professional point of view that you, you're ending it by selling uh, university study. Thank you very much. I can feel my employer getting very excited about that. Um, we, we end our films by asking what the word literature means to you. And you, you're welcome to answer this as professionally, professionally or as personally um, as you like. And you've already given us quite a few clues, I think. But yeah, where, where does that word sit for you as a, as, as a word? Um, I don't overthink it. I love reading books. And I love comics as well, which are not, you know, I wouldn't consider kind of um, literature in the same way, but I think um, culturally they're incredibly valuable. And they were, I read them as much as I read, you know, T.H. White's The Sword in the Stone or Jane Eyre or any of those other books. It's been my biggest comfort. What's been interesting during the pandemic is, um, you know, with everyone's time changed and how much time they had changed. And since since well it's been a year now I wake up at six which I've started to do anyway as I was getting older I read for two hours and I try sometimes I have a book to read for work a new novel so some of that is the joy of being given stuff that I haven't chosen so I'm reading widely but um oh, there's so many things that I haven't yet read I mean I I, I love Balzac for instance a French mm. novelist who wrote about the early 19th century and I read this book about the kind of hack journalists of um early 19th century Paris and it's funny because it's a completely different world and yet you see the similarities and it's a world of the theatre and um, harlots and um, corruption and I just love the escape and I also love um, the stuff that has unexpected resonances so that's what that means a lot so Octavia Butler the African-American science fiction writer I mean she was writing these amazing books about a right-wing rabble-rousing president who wanted to make America great again. She wrote that book in the early 90s. Mm. Um, and she wrote about slavery in a time travel book called Kindred. And those books have got a new resonance again. So um, I found comfort. I've been challenged. Um, but I mean, if you saw my house, I, I think I love books more than people. No, I, don't. <laughs> I do love my children. But um, they <laughs> everything to me. They've always been a comfort. And they're an escape too. And they're an entertainment. So I love that. There's no joy like it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm currently rereading Octavia Butler as well, and I completely agree with you about how terrifyingly she predicts our current moment. Yeah, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the... Um, what's the other one? Oh. Talents. Talents. Yeah. Um, yes, and loving books more than people. Um, I'm pleased my husband isn't here as we're having this film <laughs> because uh, he... I think he lives with someone who he worries feels the same way. <laughs> More books coming. Well, you probably won't want to include this, but you know what John Waters said about, because he, he said, well, he said two things about books. One is the joy of success was being able to buy any book, like a hardback, without having to ask the price. But the other thing he said, and apologies for the language, you can always take this out, is if you meet someone and you go to their home and they don't have any books, don't fuck them. <laughs> that was his personal opinion I think he said don't fuck him <laughs> Samira it's been an absolute joy to talk to you thank you very much thank you Andy and I would say to anyone watching this you know either we're, they're watching it when there's still effects of the pandemic in which case as we now know this too shall pass or they're watching this as a historical relic and an artifact from the past and they're trying to make sense of what, why were they all talking about this thing that happened which lasted for only a year Absolutely. Yeah, we like to think of the bit lit as a sort of time capsule for a moment. And it will only be a few years time people will be watching thinking, why are they all at home? <laughs> <laughs> but here we are. Thank you so much. My pleasure.